Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of Control Alt Azure. This episode is sponsored by ScriptRunner. ScriptRunner is a great solution to centrally manage PowerShell scripts and standardize and automate ID tasks via a graphical user interface for help desk or end users. Check that out on scriptrunner.com. My name is Tobias, and I'm back again with Juicy. What's up? Hey, Tobias. Uh, recently, I've had GPU headaches. So my main workstation at home that I'm currently using as well, uh, it's a self-built custom PC. And what I have in there is an RTX uh, 3070 GPU. So a, a sort of mid-tier GPU. I've had that for a year now. And two weeks ago, the PC started randomly rebooting. Not like it would really reboot, but the screen would just go blank. Nothing happens for 10 seconds. And then it starts booting and loading Windows again. Nothing in event logs besides unexpected restart. No, no bug check code, nothing. So I, st I, I tried troubleshooting that for a couple of evenings. And then uh, yesterday evening, uh, I yanked everything out, all the memory chips, the GPU, everything else I have in there, and started putting the components back one by one. And seems like the GPU is the problem. When I put that in now, the PC reboots maybe four times an hour. If I pull it out, it's stable as, as I'm expecting it to be. And I'm now running on the integrated Intel graphics adapter. And I can only connect two displays instead of the three that I usually have. I feel I'm not productive enough today because one of the screens is blank. And I'm unsure what to do. Should I contact the reseller and say, well, it kind of works, the GPU, but not really? Or should I try perhaps that on a different PC or just continue as is and not really worry and have this 1,000 euro device on the table not being used? I'm unsure. I, mean, I hope some, somebody in the audience can, can, can reflect some wisdom <laughs> on me. Shed some light on that. Well, I can shed some light on that. I mean, if one of your three monitors is not working, then you have to take a day off because you're not going to be productive, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I I cannot relate. I have a single monitor. I also don't have any custom-built machines. I have a laptop. I open the lid. It turns on. It says, hello, Tobias, with Windows Hello, and then I start working. When I'm done, I fold down the lid, and that's it. I don't have any any cool stuff like you do in, in that regard. Um. Hopefully you'll figure that out because of course, if you're used to your three screens, which I used to have as well, and, and I did enjoy that um, when I had them and you're now down to two, then of course the whatever productivity workflow you have set up using three screens cannot be done at the moment. Then of course it can be a, a bit of a pain when muscle memory kind of throws things over to the screen that no longer is turned on. Yeah. Um, so I, I get the pain point. So on, on my side, um, also a bit technical, but still analog. So I've been on Wi-Fi and power line adapters for about a year uh, in this new, in my new or very old house that we bought. Uh, and since the home office is placed in another building, the garage has been uh, remodeled to an office. There's no native connectivity out here because it's a garage. So there's no phone lines, there's no networking, there's nothing except for just normal power which is why I use these kind of power line adapters that gives you, you know, at least in the brochure, it gives you up to one gigabit of speed over the power lines. That was not, ex uh, in, in theory, that's how it's supposed to work. That's not in reality what actually happened. So I was now for the longest time limited to about between six and 35 megabit. 
And then, of course, depending on the mood of the Wi-Fi gods and the intermittent latency demigods, the connection could drop here and there. Perhaps that's not ideal, especially when you're doing like a presentation or a recording for a podcast like we're doing right now. So I put on my uh, hard working man clothes and put the tools in my tool belt and I started working. So I pulled a cable from the main building out to the garage and I did that through the walls of the house under the like patio or, or terrace ceiling down along the side of the house and then put them into isolated tubes in the ground uh, so you can withstand the climate we have here, uh, especially freezing temperatures, and then over to the garage and then up through the concrete flooring. And voila, in theory, I now have network in my home office. And I say in theory because I've pulled everything in, but I haven't uh, firmly connected it at this point. So I did try the cables before I did the, the wiring, so it should work. And at the, the latest test, I was about 500 megabits but I'm only paying for 250. So I'm happy with that. So I, I doubled my speed from, from what I'm paying for, but I went up a couple of thousand percent in, in speed from what I'm used to. So that's pretty cool. Some analog work, but it's powering my digital life. So hopefully from now on, I'll be at least having a couple of hundred megabits, which is of course what you kind of expect these days. Sounds good. And it's always fun when you get to do some cabling work because you're really physically doing something. Alrighty. So today, this is reliability in the Azure well architected framework. Um, we've done, I don't know how many episodes on well architected framework. Is this the fourth one that we're doing or the third one? I think this is the fourth one. We did cost optimization, we did performance efficiency, we did operational excellence. And now this one is on reliability. And the one remaining that we'll probably talk about in the future then is security. Okay, okay. So, sounds good. I, I really enjoyed this because the wisdom in, in the well-architected framework, all of the documentation, all of the, the sort of workbooks and the external resources it points to, all of those are really useful, but there's a lot to digest. So I, I like that we focus on just one at a time. Uh, so what is reliability for you besides having a GPU that works, but beyond that? <laughs> um, so, you know, I think the definition of good reliability is something that is both resilient and available. And when we talk about availability in technical terms. It's like ensuring that the workload you have is available for users or systems to access whenever they need that. So for example, ensure that the system is always ready and responsive. It can be an API that needs to respond to request whenever. It can be a, a web app or a server responding to users. And of course, then it has to be available and that's availability. The other side of reliability we usually talk about is resiliency. And that's the kind of the ability for your system to recover from failures and continue in a working state. So the idea here is to have the application fully functional after a failure. Ergo, be resilient to failures. So reliability, short term is resilience and availability. And to achieve that, we need to think about like design, testing and monitoring. And that's kind of uh, some of the core areas of the well-architected framework for reliability. Just like you mentioned just now, it's, you know, the, the well-architected framework contains so many things to talk about. And the guidance here is very elaborate and there's a lot of stuff in there. And we will never be able to cover even a fraction of that in a single episode. Uh, 
So breaking this down to each pillar, like today, reliability, we're still only scratching the surface of this. So reliability, there's, there's a lot of things to think about, but hopefully we can shed some light on like some of the principles and some of the ideas and, and why it's important to think about reliability and what to think about. But then of course, you can go to aka.ms slash WAF, W-A-F, and then you will um, get to the landing page of the Well-Architected Framework where all of this guidance is available. And you'll, of course, get the link in the show notes as well. So we did talk about some design principles in some of the other pillars. So for reliability, have you taken a look at the design principles here? I, I did have a quick peek initially uh, when the well-architected framework became available. And I have to admit that I'm, I'm more drawn towards security and cost optimization and operational excellence and reliability. Oftentimes, especially in the small engagements you do with some customers, perhaps you spend 20 days building something for a business need. The business requirement design, if you will, as, as part of the reliability, it more or less goes like this. So we want this service to be as reliable as Google.com or, or Bing.com. So it, it has to have five nines, but our budget is like 10 days for this. And I often playfully ask, well, five nines we can do, but it will be 89.9999%. Is that enough for you? No, no, it has to be 99.999%. And it's immensely hard to do something like this. But beyond that, definitely with larger projects, the, the business requirements, I feel they revolve more around not having the service to be reliable, but the idea and the processes that it sort of operates on, those to be rock solid, even if we don't exactly talk about five nines, but it just has to always work. And I, I like this. I like this discussion when we talk about the the different design principles for reliability. It's like you say, most of the engagements I've been part of as well does not focus primarily on reliability, uh, unless of course this is one of the biggest sports websites in the world or you know super enterprise grade where you expect millions of users or hundreds of thousands of users to to hit the website. And otherwise, same priority like you mentioned, security and cost optimization. These are the things that most of the customers I've spent time talking to say that these are important. Perhaps three years ago, it was always cost. Lower the cost first, then think maybe about security and then everything else. Today, I've seen a shift where it's always security first. Make sure it's secure, then optimize the cost after that, and then we can do everything else. So today, with the, the design principles for reliability, there's a couple of things that they mention also in the guidance that I really like. It's designed for business requirements is one. And exactly like you mentioned here, do you have any SLAs that determine your uptime? Perhaps you need to achieve those five nines that you mentioned, or maybe 95% for less critical workload is okay. And this is something that, of course, is a business requirement. So one, uh, one aspect of the reliability pillar when we talk about design principles is designed for business requirements. and your SLA is usually a business requirement and usually goes into your contracts as well. And there's trade-offs here, uh, usually with cost, you know, more uptime requirements and tighter SLAs usually means a higher cost to keep things operational because your entire operational 
setup needs to support your SLAs, which means more redundancy, maybe uh, spread a couple of um, different Azure regions, things like that. And you can use, because I've spent a lot of time designing SLAs recently, and you can use like a composite SLA calculation to determine your service SLA. And uh, that means pretty much you combine SLAs of all the services that you have to get the final number you want to target for the, the SLA of your you know, total service. So if you have a SQL server, you have something else, uh, maybe an app service, you can combine the SLA for all those services to get your kind of com composite SLA. But then, of course, you can have your custom solutions with an SLA as well. But that's one of the principles is designed for business requirements, which is important to think about because all of those things, of course, ties into reliability. The other thing is designed for failure because things will fail and your systems need to be designed to recover from them. And you need to anticipate failures whenever you can from individual components to entire Azure regions. And resiliency here helps with reliability. And of course, ideas here is multiple regions deploying the same workload, use availability zones, things like that. So design your solutions for failure doesn't mean that you design them to fail, but you design them in such a way that if something fails, it should keep working. So design with failure in mind. And then, of course, another design principle is observing application health. And this is about detect, uh, detection, which is a key kind of concept to understanding mitigation approaches. Because if you don't observe the health of your application or your systems, you don't know what to mitigate because you just see that things go down, but maybe you don't know where or what. So, of course, observe your application health, uh, monitor the operations of your apps and measure that against a baseline or like a health state. And this can be uh, a good way to detect and predict reliability issues. What I like here is you have Azure Monitor, for example. This is a, a very good fit for observing the health of your applications. You have uptime monitoring, uh, you have health probing, you have custom alerts and, and a bunch more things that you can make use of and you know, see the insights into your networks and, and see all the insights in app insights and log analytics. And this is really a great way to kind of observe the, the health of your applications, but also the platform itself. Another design principle is driving automation because you want to avoid downtime and you can do that with more automation. So you can improve things like reliability and automated testing, deployment, management, like when you create a new resource, you want that to be automated. We talked a couple of episodes. Um, we talked about infrastructure as code, for example, where you maybe use bicep or arm templates or, or a coded approach to create your resources. That's something that can help you kind of avoid the human errors. And I, I think we spoke about that in the past too. Human interaction or manual work more often leads to undesired results or mistakes, which is human errors. So deployments, testing, managing your workloads automatically, that helps reduce the risk for human errors. And you know, I'm going to be the first to admit I've done plenty of errors when I've deployed something, I've configured something, I missed a configuration step, I forgot to tie a managed identity to this resource, which was supposed to be there, you know, whatever, things like that, which meant we had to troubleshoot for maybe half an hour to figure out why this was not working. Okay, I missed the identity. That's a bummer. Now it's there. Lesson learned, automate this, especially if, if you do this at scale. And then there's two more kind of principles for, for designing for reliability. 
One is designed for self-healing. And I think we also spoke about this in the past, like applications should ideally be, be self-healing, which means you need to recover from failures automatically. So if your app crashes, if you're in the middle of a process, uh, if a user is doing something, if an API is being called and it crashes, it needs to be able to recover. Or if it's a heavy distributed workload doing you know, multiple of items being shipped across queues and processed, something fails or crashes, needs to be able to pick up where it left off and, and continue working. So you don't kind of drop the work. And this is, of course, something that can be very difficult to achieve, but it's something to strive for. And this will be different, of course, depending on how your application works. And the final kind of design principle there for reliability is designed for scale out. And again, it's something we talked about multiple times on the show, scaling up, scaling out, um, and then, of course, back down and in. Scaling out is when your system can respond to demand with horizontal growth, which means more nodes or instances when the load increases, you know, either during peak hits, scheduled hot hours, or you know, dynamically when the load gets, um, gets higher. Maybe your API is getting hammered. Maybe there's an event worldwide and people are calling your web app or your API at this point in time, then you need to be able to scale out. Because usually you don't need to scale up if it's just an increased kind of workload in, in this kind of pattern. Then you can just add one or multiple more instances during the peak hours and then scale back down or scale back in. And we also talked about scale units in the past where you can kind of scale as a unit and then you can kind of reduce the load on a single resource failure. And instead you can scale logical components together as part of an application scale operation. I think we talked about this, maybe it was operational excellence. Maybe it was something else. I do recall we talked about this scaling as a unit, which is a concept I really like where uh, instead of just saying, okay, now we need to scale the app service or the function app to X amount of instances or our containers, we need to add 50 more container instances, uh, but you don't change your queues or your storage accounts. So if you rely on Azure storage account for the queues and you scale up everything else, but not the storage accounts, then you will have a bottleneck, right? Is that reliable? Perhaps not, because at some point, and I've done this myself, you will end up in a situation where everything can scale except for the backend, right? And, and my storage account was one of those kind of bottlenecks. So scaling as a unit is something to, to think about, not just designing for scale out and say, okay, load increased, scale out the web, web app or the Azure function or container instances or AKS cluster or whatever automatically. But think about this as a unit. How can you scale out everything to kind of share the workload? And usually this is, if we talk about enterprise grade, or if we talk about, you know, real heavy hitters and web apps that get a lot of traffic, if it's just a web app getting a lot of people to a shopping cart and the backend is a SQL server, then usually you don't have to think about it. For my situation, we had hundreds of millions of transactions uh, per day across storage accounts and, and queues. And when we scaled up, that started to suffer. So scaling then by storage accounts kind of mitigated that immediately. So that was pretty good. Yeah, so I'm talking a lot here. Of course, I have a lot to say on these things um, because I've operated a lot of these things in the cloud. Reliability still is something I think a lot about, but truth be told, it's something that often gets less priority than the things that we talked about before, like cost optimization and security. Any thoughts on this? 
So there's a lot of things you just have to account for when designing. So perhaps one thing that I'm thinking here is that often when when I see a project team start working on a, on a service, perhaps they have a time frame of one year and and they they have an agile approach, perhaps they have four week sprints and they have to be be quick to get something up and running. So would you say that the design principles that that you mentioned, all of the things here, like the business requirements, designing for failure and so on, would you say these should be part of, of most sprints during that year that you're building a solution? Or would this be something that you spend time ahead? Because what I often witness is that something like self-healing and application health and designing for failure those are something that the teams often start thinking and planning for once things are stable and we are in production then we perhaps set aside two weeks let's do these things now yeah i think that's a good question and we talked about this i think in one of the previous WAF episodes as well and i think you asked pretty much the same question like how do we do this now in the project there is no solid answer to that other than of course everything is different uh, each organization and project will be different. The sooner you can start thinking about it, the better, but it's a trade-off, right? If the business requirement says in four weeks time, we need to be up and running with this pilot, then I wouldn't care about any of this, right? Because I would have so many other things to care about, like getting getting things set up, getting the build pipelines up there and getting all the developers to push and commit and getting the QA team uh, to test things, there would be so many things that I would need to focus on, which would be outside of just pure reliability. But these things, like all of these WAF pillars we talk about, they all tie in to all the projects that you run long-term. So again, the, the answer here for me would probably be keep these things in mind and design the systems in such a way that you know that this can be implemented in the future. So you don't need to like drive automation and have everything automated tested and automated deployments and automated management and automated provisioning of everything. If you have four weeks to deliver a proof of concept or a pilot or something into production, you know, some of these things have to be neglected for now, but it's good to have them in mind. So when you do your implementations today, they are ready to be kind of migrated to a more automated way in the future. Same thing with self-healing and, and scaling and things like that and designing for failure. Again, if, you're, if you've got four weeks and you need to just get something up and running, that tells me already there that the business requirement does not give you a requirement of a 99.999 uptime, right? If someone says you have four weeks and we need to be in production and usually with a limited time budget and uh, time and budget, you know, the business requirement of that SLA will probably not be there. And therefore, it's okay if something fails. It's okay if we have downtime for an hour today because you cannot have everything at the same time. You cannot have limited resources and limited time and unlimited reliability. It's impossible. So again, it comes back to a trade-off. And, and I, you know, every organization, again, every project, very different. So always use like a, a pragmatic approach here. This is a guideline, right? The reliability pillars and the well-architect framework, it's not a blueprint for the single truth that exists. It's a uh, kind of a guideline and best practice and 
really good point of uh, source of documentation where we can understand how we can make things better, how we can design things in an appropriate way for scaling and, and you know handling big workloads. But again, four weeks, you have a small workload, you need to build it. I wouldn't care about this. I would keep it in mind because if I'm the architect or if I'm designing these solutions, I need to understand that if we ever now put this in production and we ever say, all right, this will now be used by 100 users, which is very low scale, but in the future, it will be 25,000 users, or there's going to be hundreds of millions of hits to this API in six months, if everything goes to plan, then I need to think about these things from day one. I don't need to implement them, but I need to think about them. Because if you don't, you might have to re-architect a couple of things down the road, which will then cause probably a lot more lost time than it takes to just think about it and, and design them the right way from the beginning or design them in such a way that they are at least ready um, to, be, uh, to be improved, if you will. So that was a long answer, answer to a short question, but there is not a single answer here. Just be pragmatic um, and there's always a trade-off. Makes, makes definitely sense. So more practically then, uh, I, I like the design approach, but often, as I said, you, you sit down with a team, you, you have a goal in mind, it quickly becomes very practical in the sense. So we talk about self-healing and scale out, and we've mentioned um, scaling app services, I think in a couple of episodes. And, and for many, that's, that's fairly easy to do. You just set the sliders depending on, on how much you're willing to invest per month and what the requirement is. That's, that's mostly everything there is to it. But beyond that, beyond app service and more practically, what would you highlight as, as the sort of examples to think about on reliability, perhaps for Azure services? Yeah, um, very good question. And something I've been thinking about and pondering a lot on as well, it's exactly like you say, you end up in a project. First question is you're going to get is, okay, this is great. We need to design for reliability, but what does it mean? We're using a SQL server or a storage account or this or that in our components. How do we design for reliability more you know, in practice? So it's a very good question. And I would say like things like Azure Storage, SQL databases, Cosmos DB, um, as an example, they have like built-in data replication across availability zones and regions. That's one way to think about it. So you can kind of spread and, and replicate the data. So if a single Azure region goes down, the data can still be retrieved from the other region or regions. Um, Azure managed disks are automatically placed in different storage scale units to limit effects on hardware failures, which is also a, a way to think about things. If you operate a lot of VMs uh, and, and a lot of VMs might be you know, a part of the full solution that you have, uh, a bunch of service, then, um, you know, VMs in an availability sets is also spread across several fault domains. And a fault domain uh, is like a group of VMs that share a common power source and network. So if that power source goes down or the network is faulty in that fault domain, then all of those VMs will be unavailable. So again, VMs in different availability sets um, are then spread across several fault domains. Also a good way uh, to, to increase the reliability. So if something goes down, your entire system doesn't go down. And this way you can also replicate like responsibilities across servers. So maybe you have three VMs doing the same thing. 
So if one goes down, the other two will pick up the, the slack from the first one that went down. So this way, you can kind of design and operate your apps and databases to automatically transition between zones without interruption. But again, it's this is a I just had a one-liner. This way, you can design and operate whatever uh, without interruption. But that one-liner or that idea to operate something automatically without interruption is a lot of work. So that's why, again, each project will be different. Think about these things when you start. Uh, or if you jump into a project, think about these things. It doesn't mean you have to bring them up immediately. It doesn't mean you have to make plans for it. But, but think about what are the options? If this now needs to scale in the future, what are the options? So these were just some examples for using storage accounts or, or any type of, of data backend or managed disks, disks or VMs. And I think I mentioned availability zones. And, and those are like physically separate locations within each Azure region. So a zone is composed of one or more data centers, and those are equipped with independent power, cooling, network, stuff like that. So if you put things in different availability zones and one goes down, the other ones will, in theory, keep working. So also a good way to, whenever you design something and you say, okay, we're going to use this service in Azure, check out what availability zones exist. And if there's a paired region, if there's like a collaboration between regions with the paired regions, you can set up the same kind of service in two regions that are paired. One goes down, the other one picks up the slack. So a lot of things to think about, but at least that's a couple of practical examples. And of course the list goes on, but we couldn't possibly spend time talking about every single service and, and how to keep them reliable. My best advice there is of course, to make this practical is go to aka.ms slash WAF, the WAF, and then from there, find the service you're using and see what guidance exists uh, or do the other way around. Go to the Azure Architecture Center and just search for your service that you're using and then see what is mentioned across the different WAF pillars and also maybe in the cloud adoption framework to think about. So this is super, super solid advice, definitely. So so in WAF, and I think also in cloud adoption framework, uh, which I think we mentioned in the past a few times as well, uh, a lot of the content is is around explaining and and sort of providing guidelines for different aspects. But then on each sort of main topic, you have uh, a checklist. And I'm a bit unsure on the checklists. Uh, for example, for reliability, there's a checklist. Does it mean that I have to check off each item? Or can I just pick and choose the ones that I feel are the easiest to achieve? So how do you approach the checklists? And, and, and what checklists do we have for reliability? Are they elements that you feel that all of those have to be ticked off? Or depending on the situation, do you apply and adapt based on the checklists? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, so for reliability, there are checklists for three things, which is design, testing, and monitoring. We already talked slightly about these things across the different design principles and, and things like that. Uh, because then, of course, we, we, to achieve reliability, we need to think about design, testing, and monitoring. And that's why there's the checklist for doing that as well. So they are important. But to me, I don't know how to phrase this in English, but maybe these are more checkout lists. I check them out and I take a look at them. 
uh, you don't have to tick every single box here because that's pr pretty much impossible unless you have unlimited time, unlimited budget, which you never do. So the, the checklists are design, testing, and monitoring. And I'm just going to read here from the webpage what these checklists entail. And each of these things can be elaborated on a lot. I'm not going to do that now. I'm just going to read the, the kind of headlines on the checklist just to give an understanding what lines of thinking, what things do we need to kind of think about and tick off or check off uh, when we design for reliability. And again, when I say tick off or check off, it doesn't mean you have to implement it according to practices. You just need to read them and understand, okay, this is a trade-off. I will not do this with the risk of that. That's fine. Or, okay, this is important to us and our business requirements. Therefore, I will do this one. Then you can start ticking things off. So it's more a, a checklist or checkout list, uh, things to check out and things to think about. And then you can decide which things you actually want to bring into your project. So for design, it's really, have you designed your app with reliability in mind? And I'm just going to read some of the items here on the, on the checklist for design. It's uh, define availability and recovery targets to meet business requirements. Build resiliency and availability into your apps by gathering requirements. Ensure that applications and data platforms meet your reliability requirements. You can see there's a lot about requirements here, uh, which is in the design phase, if you will. Configure connection path to promote availability. Use availability zones where applicable. Ensure that your application architecture is resilient to failures. We talked about that already. Uh, know what happens if the requirements of an SLA is not met. Um, for example, we, we spent a lot of time or I spent a lot of time looking at SLAs. And if we don't meet the SLA, we might need to reimburse the customer for uh, the amount of time that the service was down and things like that. So it's important to think about uh, if there's any like business or legal complications of breaking your SLA that you promised your customers. Uh, identify possible failure points in the system. So you can build resiliency this way and ensure the application can operate in the absence of their dependencies, right? So remove single point of failures. So that's the kind of design checklist. And then the testing checklist is about, have you tested your apps with reliability in mind? So with focus on testing your apps. So, you know, again, just reading here from the web app, uh, website, test regularly to validate existing thresholds, targets, and assumptions, automate testing as much as possible, perform testing on both key test environments with uh, and production environments. So you can do the, the same kind of testing on all the environments you have. Perform chaos testing by injecting faults. And we talked about chaos engineering in a previous episode as well, which is really interesting. Uh, you can create a test and recovery plan on a regular basis using key failure scenarios, design disaster recovery strategies, design a backup strategy, test and validate the failover and failback approaches. And you need to do that successfully at least once. I would say you should do that at least yearly. Um, and you need to do that yearly if you need to comply with ISO 27001 or SOC 2 type 2 type of standards, then you need to do that. Uh, configure request timeouts so you can manage like intercomponent calls and what happens if something goes down. Uh, apply chaos principles continuously. Again, we talked about chaos engineering in the past. Uh, create and organize a central chaos engineering team. Again, it's a checklist. You don't have to tick every single box here because when you hear this, create and organize a central chaos engineering team. Not everyone can do that. Uh, you know, We would never have the resources to just create a chaos engineering team 
and then have them inject faults into our applications, we can try that out. We don't have the time, resources, or people for doing that. But we can take some of these things to heart and, and start adopting some of the chaos engineering principles when we implement our solutions. So that's the uh, testing checklist. And then finally, uh, the monitoring checklist is about if you monitor and measure your application health. And we talked about Azure Monitor here being a, a really great tool for this. The application should be instrumented with semantic logs and metrics. Application logs should be correlated across components. All components are monitored and correlated with application telemetry. You can see a, a lot here about correlation to ensure not just to ship logs or monitoring, but be able to tie them together to say, well, this comes from that component or it happened in this workflow or it's correlated to that type of event. You should have key metrics, thresholds, and indicators, uh, and they should be defined and captured in your logging system as well. Um, you should ideally uh, establish a health model, uh, which is kind of uh, defined based on performance, availability, and recovery targets. You can test those. Azure service health events is something you can subscribe to to get alerts when Azure service health is going down. So for example, Azure storage in West Europe sometimes becomes unavailable for a split second or for a minute for whatever reason. And then they send out an RCA or root cause analysis and they say, well, sorry, this happened and we're now mitigating, uh, look here for an update. So you should subscribe to those. And of course, you also need to monitor long running workflows uh, for any type of failures. We see this a lot uh, you know, with the Power Platform. We see this a lot with Azure Functions. We see this a lot with developers building something that works works on my machine, if you will, uh, you deploy it to production, but it doesn't have monitoring, which is kind of a killer uh, that you need to have. So then all of a sudden, the Azure function stops producing the results that you expected, but you don't know that because you don't monitor it. And then two days later, you re realized, oh, none of the invoices was actually processed because the function app crashed because of a bug in the code and it didn't recover. Uh, simple things, right? So even if your app is super simple, it's only an Azure function responding to a queue request and it's two lines of code, doesn't matter. Monitor everything, alert everything. When something goes down, you should get an alert. What I do for function apps, for things like that, where I expect them to uh, maybe execute at least 5,000 times per week or per day or whatever it is, then I put up alerts for the invocation logs of that function app and say, if the invocation count is less than zero in the last hour or whatever, bam, send an alert because this might be a critical downtime that we should not, should not accept. And then I can quickly take, take action. So yeah, those are the kind of checklists. But again, there's a lot of things in there. And I just kind of read the headlines of the checklist. There's a lot of content to drill into in each of these things. You have to, of course, again, as we talked about, uh, draw the line and, and make a trade-off. Is this relevant for me? Is this something we can spend time and money on and resources? And, and you know, which of these things are really important for us right now and in the future? And then you have to make your decisions in your business. Nobody can do that for you. Uh, we cannot do that in the podcast. We cannot do that. And the documentation cannot do it for you either. So when you go to the WAF documentation, it's going to give you all the options for how to increase your reliability but it's up to you and your project to ultimately figure out where you are, where you want to go, what the requirements are, and then how to get there.
And this guidance is a really good point for, for getting a lot of that insight. So there's a lot of things here and I'm, I'm sort of getting my eyes opened at the same time that this, these things are important, but at the same time, there's a lot, lot of things to debate definitely when you're designing a solution or if you're auditing a solution and wondering about reliability. And I feel monitoring is, is the one with most hands-on aspects as opposed to designing, which often is something that we can debate endlessly on. So, so as a sort of summary, I get that there's much to dive into here, perhaps as part of the end-to-end -end project, both in the beginning and once it's completed and when you're maintaining and monitoring things. But anything else you'd, you'd still like to highlight from everything related to reliability? Uh, yeah, I mean, like you said, monitoring is the, the most applicable type of reliability insights. So um, I think you, you asked earlier in this episode, well, if you had to choose across the design principles, would you implement them or should you implement them at the start of your project or when you start a project? No, you don't need to implement all the design principles. What you should look at is the monitoring checklist. Uh, of course, all the checklists are important, testing and design as well, but monitoring is easier to implement early on. And the earlier you do that, the more data you will have to drive the other decisions as well. When you understand how things work, when you understand how things does not work, which you can do with monitoring, then you also have a lot more data to drive decisions uh, in the other areas. So. Yeah, that, that's probably what I would focus on. Look at how you can monitor things. If you're building a super simple app, maybe a, a couple of web apps and a couple of function apps, some APIs, maybe containers, connect them to monitoring from day one in development, in QA, in production. There is no reason to not do that and do your custom log uh, logging as well. Because I, I mentioned here like key metrics, key components, data that happen within your app, something that cannot natively be logged by the Azure service, something only your code can log, make sure you do that from day one. Incorporate that into the code, make that a requirement. I have no exception to that uh, requirement in any of the projects I, I am part of. You need to have logging and monitoring connected from day one. So also just think about resilience and availability and look to the principles we talked about, which is to just reiterate, design for business requirements, design for failure, observing application health, driving automation, designing for self-healing, and design for scale-out. And you know, to sum that up, just go to aka.ms slash WAF, that's W-A-F, as in well-architected framework, and then start drilling down into these thorough guides and recommendations. There is nobody who can tell you how to do things other than yourself or your team who's working on the project with you, but a lot of the insights and a lot of the guidance is available here. And I use it a lot for a lot of my projects and a lot of my things. So I can wholeheartedly recommend taking a look at the well-architected framework. So head over to Microsoft Docs, take a look at that, browse through it. I'm sure you will find a lot of things that you can uh, make use of. Alrighty, good stuff. There's a lot to digest here. Once we're done recording this episode, I will be sure to get some coffee and, and, and have a look once more on the reliability topics. Uh, the last thing, the unexpected question. And, and based on my bookkeeping, it is my turn to ask you, Toby, 
the unexpected question. Are you ready? Yep, let's go. Alrighty. What command line tools or commands do you use most often? Uh, okay, interesting. Uh, command line tools is Windows Terminal. I use that one every day. Um, so using that, I can then use all the other tools I have. So I use Git a lot um, to get the latest data, to create new branches, to commit my things to my repositories. So Windows Terminal and Git is a, is a good combo. I use the Azure CLI a lot as well. Uh, so I would say those three things are you know, high on my list. And about what commands I use most often, CLS or clear to clear the window. Yeah. <laughs> it's the most, <laughs> most important command. When you're looking at something, it's like, I don't, I don't get it. Too much clutter. CLS, clear the window, start over. That's perhaps the number one command that I, that I use these days. Or exit. I just want to close the Windows terminal. Just exit and it's gone. Maybe not the, the best or most funny answer to, to that, but those are the, the two main commands. Clear the window, exit the window. <laughs> I'm done. I'm out of here. <laughs> That's what I use. Makes, makes perfect sense. All righty. Thank you again for, for joining this one. This was the fourth episode on the Well-Architected Framework. We still have security to go, so that will happen in the coming weeks. All right, then. See you next time.